So when you see a change, when you see a, a hard turn, when you see a shift in something, it's worth asking, why did that happen? How did that happen? Why did that happen? Astronomers do that all the time, gazing up in their telescopes out into the, the heavens, look at the celestial bodies. You know, they, they, they're accustomed to seeing a certain light, a certain thing, moving in a certain path for years and years and years, and all of a sudden, whoop, it, something happens and it changes. And they, they then begin to have to ask the question, what caused that? What caused that change? What caused that turn? What caused that shift? Detectives have to do that. It's what forensics is about on a crime scene or an accident, right? And, and you, you've got all the chalk everywhere and witnesses being asked and the questions are being asked. What caused this change? What caused this turn? What caused this shift of events? Things were moving in what, this one direction. The trajectory was going in this one direction pretty steadily, pretty predictably. And all of a sudden, a hard change, turn, shift of some kind. It happens in our lives as well, in people's stories, not just in fictional stories, but in our own stories, in any, lots of stories. You see it all through history. And the historian has to ask him or herself, what happened? What explains that change, that turn, that shift that's taking place in that person or those people's lives? Case in point, the gospel narratives, the gospel records, the historical accounts that we have, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John of the disciples, the trajectory of their lives is moving in one direction, and then a shift takes place, a, a turn takes place, a change takes place. So most of what you see in the four gospels, in, in the historical accounts that we have of their lives, these men, on the whole, a few brighter spots than others, but on the whole, were cowardly, self-focused, self-interested, divided among themselves. And then you see a change. You see a turn. You see a shift. No longer is it really given towards in, in, in that trajectory, something dramatically, something has happened, something has occurred, some event, some new something has been injected such at the time, the trajectory, the storyline's been disrupted. It's moving in a whole new direction. Now, now, they're more given towards, more given towards loving God and one another. Courageously, boldly, at times at the, the highest cost to themselves. Unwilling to back off of the proclamation that not Caesar is Lord, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And again, so with all that, you have, it begs the question, why? What happened? What caused the change? What caused the turn? What caused the shift? This is what happened. There was an event. There is an explanation. It all happened for them all, basically all at once. And how do we explain it? What's the explanation? The resurrection of Jesus. That's what disrupts the storyline for them in a dramatic, powerful way. It meant something. It did something because they recognized something had happened and they knew the significance of that something that had happened. So then... Fast-forwarding to the 21st century and us, even here this morning, I wonder, I ask myself this, what change has it made in my life? What change has it made in your life? Do we get it? Are we grasping, are we grappling with the significance of the resurrection? So surveys are done time and again, and the results just get more depressing every year. So of, of, our, of our neighbors, of our contemporaries, just here in the United States, asking the question, what do you think Easter is about? And I'm kind of abusing the language here when I say um, 
increasingly few, I don't think that's actually the right way to say that, but increasingly fewer people uh, get, while, while acknowledging that, yes, it is a re- Easter is a religious holiday, that Easter is a religious holiday, increasingly few understand its basis, its purpose, that it actually it's connected to and stemming from completely the resurrection of Jesus. Therein, most of our holiday observations, culturally speaking, are about as empty and substantive as those chocolate bunnies that we will be eating over the coming days. Um, So what would the early church have us to think about this, to understand about this? My, My guess is that they would have been rather shocked and appalled to know, but probably not surprised, to, to know that that's where we are in terms of our understanding of things. But what would they perhaps want us to know? What would Paul want us to know, the Apostle Paul? So if you have a Bible, if you'd ask you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Will read, he, he teed it up. That was the idea in that reading. Uh, chapter, uh, chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. So if you're trying to find it, it's in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians. Uh, it comes before 2 Corinthians. Hey, that's, that's easy. Um, it, it comes after the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, towards the end of that letter, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11, Paul is speaking to the historicity, the reality of the events, and the witnesses that can be uh, uh, traced down and tracked down and uh, heard from at the time of his writing. And then he shifts in verses 12 and following to talk about, now this is, this, so it happened, now this is why it's significant. It happened, and this is why it's, it means something and why we need to hear it. So I'm going to read uh, chapter 15, starting in verse 12, just down to verse 28. Starting in verse 12, just down to verse 28. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We, have even, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him. The God may be all in all. Let's uh, pause to pray for just a moment. 
What does this mean? What does this mean? Surely the first eyewitnesses were asking that question on that Sunday morning so many years ago with the news and the evidence of the empty tomb. What does all this mean? We ask the Lord Jesus, and we are asking you, and we know we can because you are not dead. You are alive, and you hear us, and you delight to answer such prayers. So we are asking now that you would help us to understand what does this mean? And moving beyond just the head understanding to a heart's understanding, and not just minds that are changed, but lives that are changed. And would you do that here with all of us wherever we are, wherever you are meeting us here this morning. Would you do it in all of us, we pray. Amen. So just after the climax of J.R.R. Tolkien's The Return of the King, uh, there is this golden moment where the heroic hobbit Samwise Gamgee has just awakened and discovered that his dear friend, the great wizard Gandalf, is in fact not dead but very much alive. And when you're reading the text of the book, this is what, uh, what Tolkien says. But Sam lay back and started with open mouth, and for a moment, between bewilderment and great joy, he could not answer. At last, he gasped, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? That's a beautiful line. That's a beautiful line of Easter reality, of Resurrection Day echoes from Middle Earth to right where we are here this morning. That's what that, that is, hearkening even to John's vision in the book of Revelation, where Jesus says to John, Behold, I am making all things new. I am making all things new. Easter, in case you don't know, is the celebration of his resurrection. And it is therein the most significant day in the flow of all history. His resurrection, the most significant, the, 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 the axis on which everything turns. Everything, absolutely everything turns. Now, that's not to say that everyone agrees with that. That's not to say that everyone says we can possibly believe that. Some will say that the gospel accounts that, that purport to record the events of Easter morning you can't trust it. You can't trust what those men had to say. Uh, it's just, th these, are, these are myths. These are stories. These are tall tales. It's all symbolic. The idea being, well, yes, it's good to read that. It's good to be exposed to that. Read it to your children. Just don't tell them it's true because these are positive ways, positive principles, you understand, by which one should orient one's life. And your life will go better if you could just buy into these stories, these myths, these tall tales. Tales. And then they'll grant us a little bit, because that feels like, well, that's a smack in the face. So they'll grant us this little bit, and that is, well, you know, it's okay, because the spirit of the man lives on in his teaching. When the Bible speaks of Jesus' resurrection, it goes a lot further than that. When the Bible speaks of Jesus' resurrection, it means for us to understand that his dead corpse came alive and walked out of the tomb with the promise that in him we will do the same. That's what the Bible speaks of when it speaks of 
resurrection. Not positive thinking, though positive thoughts come out of it. Positive hopes come out of it. But we're speaking here of a corpse that has, has come back to life with life unlike it had before. Jesus has come to make, to make all things new. All things. All things in this cosmos. All things in our lives. All things in all creation. All things in your life and in my life. He has come to make all things new. Listen to this uh, question and answer from the old Heidelberg Catechism. It's there in your quotes and notes if you want to read along with me. It's, it's one question with three answers that come and actually form something, kind of, something of the outline of where we're going over the next several minutes. So the question is, how does Christ's resurrection benefit us? First, by his resurrection, he has overcome death so that he could make us share in the righteousness which he had obtained for us by his death. Second, by his power, we too are raised up to a new life. Third, Christ's resurrection is to us a sure pledge of our glorious resurrection. Christ is risen. Everything sad is coming untrue. He has come to make all things new. He's come as a consequence of the resurrection. It means that we can have a new past, a new present, and a new future. And we need desperately to not only hold to that, but to live out of those realities. So he has come, he has risen, he has come to make all things new, to make everything sad come untrue, to give us a new past, a new present, and a new future. And we need to do more than just talk about that, think about that, but hold to that and live out of it. Let's unpack that. Let's go with these uh, points for the next few minutes here. So a new past. The resurrection shows that Jesus has come to give us a new past. You, you see that, and I'm going to hit a smattering of these verses in chapter 15. I'm going to hit verse 14, 17 in the first part of verse 20. I think it's on the should be on the screen uh, if we've got that slide. Uh, verse 14, Paul says, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. Skipping down to verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And then giving down to verse 20, this glorious but. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Oh, that is good news. So the resurrection is his proof to us. The resurrection is Jesus' proof to us of who he is as the Son of God, as the second person of the Trinity, not just fully God, not, well, not just fully man, but fully God. So it is the conclusive proof as to who he is, the resurrection. It's not just proof though as to who he is, but also to what he's done, his work. I'm going to throw some big $50 words at you, okay? These are big theological terms. You can look them up later, but they, they just capture so much in terms of uh, how theologians describe what, what Jesus has done here with, in the resurrection. We have proof of his work of expiation. That is to say, the, the removal of all of our guilt and shame. We have proof of his work of propitiation, his removal of all the just wrath of God due to us because of that sin. We have proof, the resurrection is proof of his finished work of redemption freeing us from the curse of the sin, the law, death, and the devil, the tyranny, all of that. Proof, the resurrection, not just expiation, propitiation, redemption, but proof 
of his finished work of reconciliation, bringing us back into relationship with our creator. The resurrection, Jesus, the empty tomb is proof of all those things. A lot is worth, we don't have time to get into it right now, I'd be happy to talk about it later if you'd like, but there's much we could say proof of the resurrection, and what I mean by that is you know, how you can know it happened, historical evidences, and all kinds of proofs that we could point towards saying that, yeah, this did happen. This really was an event in time and space. So proof of the resurrection, but we should also speak of proof from the resurrection, proof by the resurrection, that indeed we are free. We are forgiven, that the work is done. It is complete. It is finished, and we can know that. You wonder, you wonder, has Jesus paid it all? I think we sang that, didn't we? There we go. Has he paid it all? Well, if you're wondering, look in the tomb. There's your answer. God raised him from the dead. Yes, Jesus paid it all. That's how we can, can know. So it's, it's, it, Jesus has is, is come to give us a new past, and we see that with the proof to us. We see also his saving work in the resurrection, not just as a proof, but Part of the saving work itself is the resurrection as well. Christ as victor. Christ as the one who has conquered, our conquering king on our behalf. I'm going to read verses 17 through 19 again. Now, Paul puts it negatively at every point here. Try and, in your mind, as I'm reading it, turn it positively, okay? So what are the implications if, in fact, Christ has been raised? So back to verse 17. If Christ has not been raised... Your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Okay, take that and turn it positively. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Okay, turn that. If in Christ we have hope in this life, we are of all people most to be pitied. Okay, turn that. What we have with the resurrection. What, okay, I'll turn that. Where would we be without it? Where would we be without it? Nothing would have been accomplished our great enemy of sin, Satan, and death, unconquered. But with the resurrection, we have justice satisfied. We have victory, a cosmic, spiritual victory over sin, Satan, and death. And our king, our great conquering king, the victorious one, coming forth with the spoils of war, Delighted to share all that he has won on our behalf. And so we are free. Free, free indeed in every possible sense. The resurrection, the resurrection. Jesus has come with that to give us a new past. Think back. You have a new past. In Christ, we have a new... So if I can put it this way. So with proofs, let's turn it, play with this wording a little bit. Because of what has been proven here... There is now nothing left for you and I to prove. You see? Because of what he's done, there's nothing left for us to do. There's nothing left to be done. Or as, as has been wisely, beautifully, repeatedly said in so many different venues, there is, because of the finished work of Jesus with the resurrection there truly is nothing you and I can do to make Jesus, make him love us any more, nor is there anything that we can do that would cause him to love us any less. 
because of the resurrection. It's complete. It's finished. The victor. Victor. So everything's sad coming untrue. We have a new past. That should then compel us to want to serve this one, to live in thanks, to give ourselves, yield ourselves to this one who has done this for us. Not, not, of course, recognizing what we've been saying so far, not in order to earn his love, but because we know he's, we already have his love. They're impelling and compelling us all the more to want to serve and live a life of gratitude towards him. But we need to do more than just think about this. We need to lay hold of it. We need to lay hold of it. It's clear what Paul has in mind. Okay, with the resurrection, a new past. A new present. With the resurrection, we have a new present. A, A whole world, a horizon of wondrous possibilities opened up to us. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, for starters, we see with the resurrection, we have a new life. Life from Him. Eternal life, as the Bible, especially in John's writing, speak of, is not something we just wait for. It's not just something that's out there on the horizon, coming after you die. Eternal life. But biblically, it's not just everlasting life, eternal life, but ever-deepening life that comes down now. The future in Jesus has invaded the present We have this new life in Him now, everlasting, ever-deepening life now. Now, how can that be, you ask? Because of our union with Him. We've been made one with Jesus. One with Jesus. And I know this is hard for us uh, Westerners in our individualistic, um, independent-minded, non-corporate thinking to get our minds around. But we are one with Christ the follower of Christ, has been made one with Christ. He is our our head. I'll take you to to Romans chapter 6. Paul speaks of this. He does hint at it in 1 1 Corinthians 15, but he he couldn't really be more explicit than what we see here regarding this new life than what you see in Romans chapter 6. So it's there on the screen, Romans 6, verses 5 through 11. Now listen to what the apostle says, and he he speaks of resurrection and new life. But more than just future, Paul is talking about present, present reality of resurrection life. For if we have been united with him, now that's Jesus, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Again, Paul is speaking here not of something merely future. He is speaking to something that we are supposed to be taking, living out now. Now, here in the present, because we have this new present. This union with his, the consequences of this union with Christ. We have a shared death experience. We died with Christ. That's what Paul is saying. I know it's hard for us to get our minds around this, but spiritually speaking, it's what he's saying. 
When Jesus died, you died. And when Jesus rose, you rose. When Jesus died, you died. When Jesus rose, you rose. Therein, there is new life, resurrection life, the power of God at work in you. He says in, a, in the book of Ephesians, the very power of God that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in you, in you and I, right now. I know it's hard for us to grasp, but that's what the biblical teaching is. And it is no less amazing today than it was when it was first penned and so, so needed, so, so needed. With the resurrection, Jesus has come to give us a new, not just a new past, but a new present, a new present even now, if I could be that redundant, a new present even now. Now think of all the, the, the implications of this. Think of all the, the, the immovable things in your life and in my life, or at least seemingly. There are a lot of seemingly immovable things in this, in this world. A friend of mine was telling me a few years ago about how his father-in-law had had the, their one-story home jacked up and then a new first story built under it and then the old first story, now the second story. Is that crazy? Seemingly immovable. Or that same, that same group of contractors, construction company and such, was also charged with this project. This old plantation home, I don't know exactly what Gulf State it was on, but what was old plantation home. They realized it was too big to move down the street. They wanted to move it, they, but it was too big to move down the street. So they jacked it up and sailed it down the coast and then moved it to its new site. Or my personal favorite in terms of seemingly immovable objects, uh, several years ago, the, the Cape Hatteras Lighthouse. You know, hundreds of years old, this old tall brick structure jacked up moved inland on sand and then fir firmly, firmly placed down in a, in a new location. I got all these seemingly immovable objects but can be yet still moved. Well, okay, that's neat. What does that have to do with the resurrection power? Okay, think with me about the seemingly immovable objects in your life right now. The stuff that looks like it's not going anywhere. That seething anger that you struggle with that is so hurtful to the people around you. That crippling insecurity. That hellacious self-centeredness and bitterness. That addiction that you've just gotten so used to and made so many excuses for, you just made peace with it. Friend, Jesus has come to make everything sad come untrue. He has come to make everything sad untrue. He has come to give us a new present. There is new power, resurrection power, and life in his people.
I'm not trying to give you a simple answer, but I'm telling you there is an answer at the root of the answer, and it is him. It is him. And again, we need to do more than just talk about this. We need to do more than just study it. We need to do more than just blog about it. We need to take it to heart, bring it into our lives, and live out of it. The reality that in Christ, with the resurrection, it must mean something. He's come to give us a new present, a new past, one more, here's the third point, a new future, a new hope, a real hope, a real hope. So, picking up where we left off, verse 20, and I'm just going to stop in verse 23. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom. To God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. And it, you, we could go on and read there, and I actually went over to look past what was on the screen, uh, going on there and talking about the, the, the cosmic reign of Jesus that, that is at work now, that Paul is giving us a glimpse there into, and the timeline of what's coming, this huge, huge cosmic perspective on Jesus and his reign and giving over his reign to the Father, so much to consider there. But I just wanted to for our time this morning is just to consider this agricultural image that, that Paul uses here, describing Jesus and the, his resurrection as the first fruits. And the extraordinary implications of that for us right now of Jesus' resurrection as the first fruits. So what's the first fruits? What in the world does that mean? Um, most of us, you know, understand food to come from Publix or Walmart or Kroger, we don't understand that it comes from fields. Um, and, and so first fruits, what, what on earth does that mean? Um, then and now, the image of the first fruits has to do at least partly with it being an indication, an indication that another, a greater harvest is coming. The, the fact that you've got this first fruits, this first flowering of crops, so to speak, is an indication of the fuller harvest, the assurance of the, the a fuller harvest to come. Well, that's exactly what we have here with Jesus' body on that first resurrection day, that resurrection day, that first Easter morning. His resurrected body is an indication of what our own resurrected bodies are going to be like, imperishable, the same and yet different, different and yet the same. A lot of mystery to that. Don't quite understand all of it, but it's pretty clear at least that much. The first fruits at least is, means this much. It's an indication of what's coming, what's coming for us and the whole cosmos, for us and the whole cosmos. But the first fruits also means something else, not just an indication, but also a guarantee. Those first fruits that, you know, if you think in terms of if you're a farmer, you're, you can hold them in your hands. That's how tangible the, the promise, the assurance is. It's a preview and a promise of what's coming, a guarantee and certainty that there's more yet a coming, better days ahead, 
is the promise to the farmer. That's exactly what we have with the first fruits as Jesus, his resurrection is the first fruits. The empty tomb is a certainty, an assurance, not just an indication, but a certainty of what is coming. Again, we don't know how this is going. We don't know how he's going to take our molecules and reconstitute them and renew them and make us all new. He made the dang molecules, so I guess he can do that. And free to do it however he wants. We don't know how. That's not really the point. We just know that. That it's coming. And with all of that in mind, Paul then is so bold to say at the very end of the chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. So with all that in mind, I think we've got a slide here. With all of that in mind, he then is so bold to say this. Therefore, you know, with this with these first fruits and that promise and indication. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your work in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. The resurrection means something. A promise of a, not just a new past, a new present, a new future. We, we can identify all of us with something of this, even at some level, right? When you know what's coming, it can help you hang on, right? When you know what's coming, it can help you hang on, just hang in there a little longer. So I can remember when I was in college, I had this miserable roommate experience, okay? Likely much of my own making, I know. But anyway, we'll say it was all his. And I can just remember, though, I mean, this was just... It was spring semester. I'm just, I'm literally, I'm not exaggerating, literally counting the days. But I had a calendar. I had a paper calendar. You know, one of those big desk calendars. I'm like a prisoner in the cell, you know, doing the X's, you know, making my way to the end of this cursed time in my cell block in the dorm. But knowing, right, that there was an end coming helped me to hold on. Not many of us can identify with that in a whole realm of different ways. Like just a long, exhausting work shift. And you're just looking at your watch saying, okay, just like, you know, three more hours, two more hours, one more hour, 10 minutes, you know, whatever it is. Or just a long, hard school year. You're just X number of days left, a few more classes, a few more assignments, and I can, I, uh, it's a little longer. Or a long, wrenching deployment. Right? And sometimes you, add, you can add this with that one especially. Knowing not just what's coming can help you hold on, but knowing who is coming when there's a sweet reunion, inevitable and promised and assured, that can help you hold on all the more. Back to 1 Corinthians. What do we have here? This promise, these first fruits. Look around you. Look within you. There is so much that is not the way it is supposed to be. Do I have to prove that to you? No, instinctively. We all know this. There's so much. We look inside, we look outside. We look to the left, we look right, we look in the mirror. There's so much that is not the way it's supposed to be. And the assurance that we have here is things are not forever going to be this way. Jesus has come to make all things new. 
We have hope, not wish fulfillment, but certainty, expectation, promise, hope built on the certainty of the one who's given us the promise. Hope, real hope, true hope, expectation of what, who is coming and what he's going to do. The day is coming. Friends, hear me. A day is coming when there will be no more storms, no more tornadoes, no more school shootings, no more crashes in the fields, no more tears to our relationships, no more divorce, no more hiding. No more self-protectiveness because of fear. Made whole, spiritually and physically. That's what's waiting us. That's the promise and the certainty, the surety of the first fruits, that we're going to be like Jesus and we're going to see Jesus face to face. That's coming. That day is coming, and the resurrection is the promise of that. We have a new future, a new past, a new present, and a new future. But let me come back to where I started. It is one thing to say something has happened, right? We're talking about real historical events. It is one thing to say something happened, and it is a whole nother to lay hold of it and live out of it. Those are two different things. To intellectually acknowledge a thing took place and heartfeltfully live out of it. Those are two different things. Now, the one leads to the other, but it's two different things. So, think of the American Civil War, okay? Now, I I know we live in troubled times in our nation today. I get that, you know, duh. Difficulties, divisions in every possible arena. Troubles of our own kind and making in in so many different ways. Hard times to be sure, but these are not the hardest. American Civil War? These are not the hardest. Palm Sunday, 158 years ago, the surrender at Appomattox Courthouse in Virginia. That's the event. And the only sane right thing to do after that is to lay down your arms and go home because that's what happened. Good Friday, just a few days later, Good Friday, 158 years ago, President Lincoln is assassinated in Ford's Theater. The only right thing for a nation to do at that point was to mourn this tragedy, what had befallen the president. And really, it would have been insensitive, short-sighted, and foolish in both of those events not to respond accordingly because those things happened, right? There was an appropriate response to those things. We're talking about another historical event with Jesus' resurrection. Appropriate responses. What might they be given that he has brought us with that a new past, a new present, a new future? The the profession, Christ is risen, is not just to be said. It is to be lived. It is to be heard. It is to be embraced. 
It is to be brought down to the, into the heart's depth, not just to convict us, but to compel us, because this is the best of news, the news your ears were meant to hear, the, the news that your heart most needs to hear. He's come to make everything sad untrue, all things new, the whole of everything, and the whole of us. Can we pray? Lord, we know that it is not Friday anymore, it is Sunday. We know that darkness has given way to light, death has given way to life, the stone has been rolled away, a shocking new thing has happened, and with that, Jesus, would you please, by your Spirit, bring the shift, bring the change, bring the turn that should take place in our lives. Many of us this morning, well, all of us this morning need to hear this good news, but each of us in different ways. Some of us this morning need to know of the new past and know that we are forgiven. Some of us this morning more so need to hear the good news that we have a, in you we have a new present, new power, new life. We are free. Some of us here this morning need to hear more than any other that there is a new future. We have hope, true hope. Oh, Lord, wherever we are, wherever we're, however we're coming into this time, would you help us to hear Would you help us to live out of these things? And then would you help us to go proclaiming them? Pray in your name.